Okay, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President for Policy Programs at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program, and I am really thrilled to invite you to today's Working in America series. At uh, the Economic Opportunities Program, we advance promising policy strategies and ideas to help low and moderate income Americans connect to and thrive in today's changing economy. And in the Working in America series, we particularly look at some issues facing work and the changing nature of work and the shape of work and how can working people today earn a living and earn a livelihood in, in this um, fast-changing world of work. And, and it's particularly exciting to be talking about retail uh, today. So today's conversation on retail, um, we were just having an interesting conversation over lunch. It's sort of endlessly fascinating to think about the range of ways that retail is changing, um, uh, how technology is changing retail. And it's not just e-commerce, but you know things like how inventory tracking happens, how scheduling happens, and how, uh, how people get their shifts. All of these things have been influenced by technology. And so the way technology is changing retail is also really changing the way uh, retail works and, and has implications for, for how people work. I wanted to, to mention just a, a couple things about our own work. Um, you do have on your, on your chairs this little card that describes some of the work that the Economic Opportunities Program has been doing, looking at retail, working with six communities in different parts of the country to think about what are the retail jobs in their community, what are the kinds of um, uh, ways those jobs are changing, how can workers be better prepared for and supported in those jobs, and how will those jobs help workers build a career. So we encourage you to, to learn about uh, Reimagine Retail, a partnership that we're doing in partnership with the Walmart Foundation. And speaking of the Walmart Foundation, I do want to thank very much our supporters for today's event, which include the Walmart Foundation, but also include the Ford Foundation, the Cerdna Foundation, and the Prudential Foundation. So we are very grateful to them for their support of our work. Um, uh, on other logistical announcements, I do want to remind you to please uh, silence your phone. We are live streaming and recording today's event, uh, but to please join the conversation on Twitter. Our hashtag is TalkGoodJobs. Um, I also want to mention another card that you have. This is our very last Working in America event in this building, in this space. Uh, we're moving. We're moving to 2300 N Street um, to a beautiful new space. We hope you'll join us there. It's accessible by two metro stations. There's a parking garage in the building. You can get there by Lyft or by taxi. There's a bike share station nearby. So however you want to get there, we hope you will come. Please join us next year. We'll be resuming our Working in America uh, series there. Um, so I think, uh, I think that, that with that, I want to uh, in briefly introduce our panelists. And I will mention that you do also have their bios on your chair and they're on our, our website as well. Um, we have a really terrific uh, panel for you today to talk about this uh, endlessly interesting issue of the future of work and retail. Um, uh, I mentioned we had a really great uh, conversation over lunch, so I want to introduce them quickly and hopefully say their names correctly um, uh, so that they can have a, a conversation and a conversation with all of you. Uh, so to my far left, um, uh, to your right, is Ellie Bertani, Senior Director of Associate Innovation, uh, U.S. People Team at Walmart. And next to Ellie is uh, Sebastian Vanderzeel, uh, Director and Global Thematic Research Analyst, Cornerstone Capital Group. Uh, next to Sebastian 
is today Gabriel Selassie, a senior staff attorney at the National Employment Law Project. Uh, next to today is Gina Schaefer, co-founder and CEO of a few uh, cool hardware stores. I'll give a shout out to my Tacoma Park hardware store. Love shopping. <laughs> Thank there. you. Uh, and uh, we're very thrilled to have uh, uh, Greg Ip, uh, from, uh, Chief Economics Commentator at the Wall Street Journal, uh, here to moderate today's conversation. So Greg, let me hand it over to you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Uh, so I don't think anybody would dispute that this is probably the best time ever to be you know, a retail shopper. I mean, the, uh, the venues that you can choose from, the variety, the choice, the price competition. I mean, every day there's something new. Yesterday, Stitch uh, went, on, you know, went public on the stock exchange. You can now order like 10 outfits online and try them on uh, in your home. You know, Whole Foods will soon now be the drop-off place for all your Amazon products. But it may be the best time to be a retail customer, but I think there's a... a there's another question hanging over all this, which is, is it as good a time to be a retail worker? And that's the sort of question that we really want to get at today. How are all the changes that we're seeing in retail format, retail technology, retail business model affecting the people who, you know, fulfill those orders, who service in stores, who do those jobs, the pay, the conditions? And so we have a terrific panel here to discuss that. Um, Ellie, I'm going to start with you. Walmart is, I think, the biggest employer of uh, retail workers, possibly the biggest employer of any kind in the world. A retail associate may be at Walmart, maybe the single most common job title in the United States. How has that job changed over the years, and how do you expect it to change in coming years, given all the changes that are going on in retail? Sure. So, of course, uh, we all know we see a lot of changes with customer behavior in retail. And I want to start there because customer behavior really drives the changes that we're seeing in work, the workers. We see changes in, obviously, customers going online and shopping in stores. And so Walmart um, is taking an omni-channel approach and trying to attack both um, channels simultaneously. We also see big changes in how customers come to our stores and shop. So customers used to come during daytime hours. Now they're coming more in evenings and weekends. That affects how we have to staff our stores and, and remain productive. Um, we also see technology playing a huge role um, in the changing way of work. So. Uh, you may come into our stores now and see a lot of our associates holding handheld devices similar to your iPhone. Um, and those handheld hold, hold devices and the various apps that we use to increase productivity of our workers change the skills that they need to come to the table with, change how we need to prepare them and train them on the job, uh, and change how they do the work and service customers every day. We anticipate, um, we've seen a lot of changes, we anticipate even more changes going forward. Um, and we're trying to meet those changes um, in, in a number of ways. First, by um, training and investing in our workforce to make sure that they are prepared um, for the changes that we see coming. And also making big investments in technology in our stores, in our distribution centers, and for our transportation units as well. Well, thanks. Uh, how about you, Gina? You're kind of at the opposite end of the scale of Walmart in terms of size, and yet you're growing. And um, the local hardware store seems almost like an anachronism in today's day and age. But uh, how do, do your employees represent a competitive advantage for you when you're trying to take on the online world or the Walmarts of the world? Well, I think um, we face a lot of the same challenges as, as other retailers, although traditionally hardware stores are considered you know, part of Main Street USA and the fabric of communities. And I think our competitive advantage to that particular question is that people still want to come in and talk to somebody. They still want to have someone walk them through fixing a faucet, fixing their toilet, talking to them about how not to kill their, their house plant that doesn't need a lot of light or does need a lot of light, et cetera. Um, so some of those common questions. So we have a tremendous amount of fear with the resources available online with 
um, a variety of, of online options to educate our consumers about those types of products. But I think the research and anecdotally still point to people wanting to come in face to face, talk to somebody, hold my hand, tell me how to how how to do this and what I should do to not screw it up. So, so for your recruiting and hiring, how does that change that process? Does that require you to put more of a premium on that kind of knowledge or interactive uh, skill? Well, I think um, I think later on we might talk a little bit sure. more about technology, so I'll yeah. leave that out of this answer. But it certainly does. Uh, we start. We have always started traditionally with someone who can smile, which sounds a little silly, but uh, customer service at its core is someone who's friendly. And so if you don't have the friendly piece down pat, it doesn't matter how much you know about plumbing, you're not going to interact well with customers. So we still start with that foundation, and then we wrap a whole lot of training around it. So I would say they don't have to come in with that skill set, but we rapidly make sure they get it if they can. Great. And Sebastian, your firm recently did a report, I think, on uh, the role of the worker in this changing environment. Um, what um, Could you just sort of summarize for us what you found, and especially as the role of technology transforms retail, does this mean we end up in a world with more or less jobs, and are they better or worse jobs? Yeah, so Greg, it's a, um, <clears throat> obviously a very, very sort of uh, excited question about the future of retail from our perspective. Just to be about who we are, Coniston Capital Group uh, is an investment advisor that advises endowments, high net worth individuals, pension funds, and others about sort of thinking about investing in a, in a way that in really captures and, and, and integrates environmental, social, and governance. So we came at this topic really thinking to ourselves, we had felt like mainstream Wall Street had not, was thinking about automation from purely a, a benefit cost analysis of saying the cost of my automation technology is A and my worker hourly rate is B, and therefore you know, this gives me the ability to see what I should do. And our question was, well, I think there's a whole stakeholder sort of system around this of communities, workers, consumers, and other questions. So we, we sort of wrote, the, wrote this report on the basis that decision-making in a vacuum purely on the basis of cost and, and, and savings was, was, was interesting to us because it didn't sound like sensible way to long-term plan where you want to be as a retail. So our retail report, and one of the areas was picked up quite strongly, which was a very simple analysis based on some work done in the UK on automation, which suggested a number, at least sort of a decent amount of retail workers were at very high probability of um, automation. And, 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 and you know, people sort of view that as an apocalypse. And I guess my, our view, and that we've always said it, is uh, you should save the word apocalypse for real apocalypses. You know, this is a transition. It's very dangerous. It's very difficult. It's very, very complex. But it is not an apocalypse. <clears throat> so the question for us is, how many retail workers will, will there be? What will they be paid? I think that's going to have a lot to do with what formats of retail are we going to expect? How is technology going to make a consumer's life either easier or make their experience of shopping better? And those two things are not always the same, and they can conflict. So going forward, the question to us is this. Retail employs the third largest amount of Americans at about 16 million currently. The question for retail going forward is where um, will people be required within the retail supply chain to make sure that we as consumers get what we want? And then how does this impact our broader society, our communities and others? So we see transition in the number of workers and we imagine and we see and we can see in the statistics that the number of retail workers is likely to come down in terms of the ones in stores. But the question of the future of retail is really about how retail will respond. And so we don't have a view that being paid more or less is it's easy to determine. And I think that's, that complexity is really important. And companies who set themselves out with a target, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to achieve, that for us is a stronger statement than saying, 
we know how many employees we'll have in five years. What do you want to be as a retailer? That's a more powerful place to be than saying, I'm going to pay people exactly what I want to pay them, which is either the minimum wage or, you know, or some kind of living wage or even more. And then the question of um, how many do I need? Uh, Sadai, I'll come to you next. Sadai, I'll come to you. Uh, in terms of well, trying, looking at the life of the worker itself, mm -hmm. what do you think are the biggest challenges for sort of like safeguarding the working conditions and the dignity of the basic uh, life that a retail worker leads? Yeah, and I think so. My, my organization does a lot of work with retail and other uh, <laughs> worker organizations that are trying to improve pay and conditions in the workforce. And retail is especially important for us because, as Sebastian noted, it is you know the biggest low-wage sector in the country. I mean, one in eight occupations is a retail job. And so the pay and other working conditions that Walmart and other retailers set in the industry have massive repercussions for the low-wage workforce as a whole. Um, right now, you know, the average median wage for a retail salesperson is, I think, $10.90 an hour. Um, and so that low wage, um, you know, has an effect on millions of workers in the U.S. So I think for us the challenge is how do we raise that wage, whether it's through policy, whether it's through employers doing it on their own, corporate pressured, worker organizing. Um, how do we improve other conditions that aren't as talked about but are, you know, really devastating to low wage retail workers? So the fact that they can't control their schedules usually, that they work involuntarily part time when they're begging for hours and, you know, can't support kids or to figure out, you know, child care needs. Um, and how do we make sure that it's a job that, you know, you feel comfortable going to your boss when you have a problem and don't, you know, fear getting fired or getting retaliated against? Um, you know, th these are all very real concerns for retail and other low-wage workers. And I think, you know, and we will talk later about how the retail industry is changing and how technology is impacting it. But you know, and I agree that there uh, there will be job loss in the in the traditional retail sector. But then we have to look at you know how do we make sure that the jobs that come about as a result of this destruction or you know transformation um, don't replicate the same bad patterns that we're seeing. So, so let me uh, focus a little bit on this question of what technology does to retail. I'll start come back to you, Ellie. How is how will technology affect the productivity of your workforce? And as the end game that you will need far fewer workers than you do today, or will it just enable you to do things you didn't do before, and that will require different and more workers? So technology is affecting us across many fronts. Um, some of you may have heard or read um, some articles that have come out recently saying we're starting to put robots in our stores, as an example. Um, so we are experimenting with um, taking away some of the uh, least interesting um, uh, most onerous tasks that some of our associates do, scanning for outs on the, on the shelf. A typical worker will do this a couple of hours per week. Um, humans tend to be more error prone than our robots. Um, and the robot will sort of scan for outs and make sure that we have the, the proper inventory stocked for our customers. What this does, right, there are implications for this. What we're excited about for the workers is it takes away some of the most unpleasant work that they do um, and allows them to now focus that time on customer service. The implication of that, of course, is that we have to make sure that our associates are well-trained to be better and better at customer service because this then becomes a differentiator for us as we compete against online in the future. Um, in another example, um, uh, we think about scheduling, right? So uh, today, accurately said that um, in many retail environments, there's big challenges with scheduling employees. And we have made a big effort, um, both to make sure that all of our associates have their schedules early, um, much earlier than many other retailers, several weeks in advance, 
but also we are now looking at technology as a tool to help us both balance the need of customers who are shopping at different times in our stores with the desires that we know our associates have, desires to sometimes work more hours. Some associates, a large proportion of our associates want fixed schedules, and then there's a large proportion also that want flexibility in their schedules. This is a complex set of variables, but what's great about new technology is that it, um, through new systems, we can now start to balance those variables um, and understand how do we build a, a complex scheduling environment for the 350 associates in a super center where we can have all of the above. We can have people with fixed schedules, flexible schedules, and a path to more hours if they seek that. So technology is doing a lot to help the customer and help our productivity. Can you give us an example of how, uh, like in a store, that technology will have changed the scheduling process? Do employees now in some sense bid for schedules instead of being given schedules? Yeah, so, so we're testing it right now, so no promises yet. But um, what we're trying to do is uh, essentially think of a, a base set of hours that a store needs to run no matter what. So you take the lowest point of the year, the lowest week, and there's a, a fixed amount of hours that, uh, that is always constant. And above that, there's a variable amount of hours that flexes with the season or flexes with the time of day or flexes with the week of the year. That base package of hours now becomes fixed schedules. Um, that uh, associates can have for six months or longer, right? You can get a package of fixed schedules every day. That would be a combination of probably good and bad shifts, bad shifts, good and less um, advantageous shifts. But you know and you have the predictability. All those variable hours are then a bucket that you can choose, pick and choose. So the associates that want flexibility can go online and say, I'm going to work this get, I'm going to work this hour on Tuesday morning and then Saturday afternoon whatever that may look like, but they have the full control over how they set their schedule. What so happens it's a very if they, interesting But what happens scenario. if the hours that they want don't correspond to the hours that you need? You know, you have too many people who want to work Mondays and Tuesdays and not enough who want to work Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. So, so this is reality. So we yeah. have to hire to the need because yeah. we have to serve the customer first and foremost, right? The customer needs to be serviced when the customer is in the store. Um, and that's what the business runs on. We don't have jobs if we can't serve the customers. Yeah. So that's where we start. But then as we hire, we ensure that we ask people, what is your availability? When do you want to work? And we try to match and make sure that we're sustaining that demand and giving people choice. So, Sade, when you hear this description, I mean, do you think that this on net is a positive or a negative for the retail worker? Well, not having heard the specific, I mean, I guess for me, the questions that, that it would raise is, you know, what's, what's the minimum base number of hours that a worker's getting before they can, you know, choose which hours? Um, what is the process by which an employer chooses which employer gets to get those prime shifts? You know, like oftentimes workers will tell you that a manager or, a, you know, will favor certain workers or other. So is it just a random, you know, whoever signs up first for those extra hours? Um, and I guess just like stepping back, and I'd be curious to hear, you know, how you did in your, your story. It seems, you know, in a lot of other industries, like, I mean, the industry that I work in, which I know is very different, but, you know, we have a set schedule. And I completely understand that retail is very different because you have to be responsive to the, to the consumer. But I do think that at a certain point, you know, trying to match with 100% accuracy the exact labor demand that you might need at a certain time, certain day, with that percentage of worker, are they able to come in or, or not? I think in the end, um, I think is not, for a worker, um, I don't think it's a great way to live long term. Yeah. Um, Gina, do you want to sort of weigh in on that? I'd also like to hear a little bit about how you are trying to use deploy technology in your stores. Obviously, you don't have the IT budget that a Walmart or an right. Amazon would. 
and you're essentially a, essentially a human experience, not an online experience. Does technology help or does the advance of technology help or hurt your business model? Well, I think it's both. I'm an eternal optimist, and I've been teaching myself how to see both sides of every coin. I think your, your point today, though, is, is um, it's on point because most retailers don't have the luxury of a Walmart to have that, that amazing visibility into customer demand and the hours and, and that sort of thing. So when a couple, for the past couple years, my husband and I advocated on behalf of the fair scheduling laws in Washington, D.C., which requires that you put your schedule out two weeks in advance to make sure that people could have um, a life, essentially. And to be honest, I didn't realize that that was even a thing. I didn't know that everybody wasn't already doing that because we were already doing that. And so it became very easy to try and figure out how to make those of us who have nine to five jobs know when we can schedule the doctor and know that our boss will give us an hour off to take someone uh, to pick up a prescription or whatever. But if you are stuck on a retail floor, you cannot do that. Um, and so the scheduling law has sort of even the playing field in the district. And so folks who are in sales associate retail positions have a chance to know two weeks in advance when they can schedule those things. From a, an outside, another, in other technology, uh, there are so many tools that we can use now that are both wonderful as small retailers to be able to afford and very difficult for the retail worker. You know, gone are the days when someone would walk in the door and say, I want to be a stock boy. I want to work overnight. Most small retailers, and I'll just continue to reflect on me being small. I don't think I'm that atypical. But um, we don't have the luxury of having overnight shifts or being able to afford someone who's just stocking shelves. And so we've had to add technology to help us count the outs and manage the inventory and a whole host of other things where historically someone may not have any technology skills, may not even have used a computer, and they could still walk into a retail business and get a job. Everybody who walks into my store who wants a position now can cut keys and make paint and fix a window screen, and probably 99% of them can use the cash register. Even some of those basic skills, although using a cash register has become a lot more complex since I was a kid, um, require some basis of technology knowledge or at least the aptitude to be able to learn it. And then I think from a retailer's perspective, our commitment to teach you. So you may come in with zero baseline, but we have a very serious commitment to getting you to that baseline. So I can imagine a world, well, for example, I, uh, I can now do very minor repairs on my refrigerator because I can watch a YouTube video. Sure. Does that diminish my need for the sort of the personal sort of uh, touch that your store specializes in? Or does the existence of that same technology accentuate the ability of your employees to offer an even better experience, plus or minus? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Certainly my employees can go to YouTube and watch a video if you come in with a question that they can't answer. So sure. we tell them all the time, use your lifelines. Google the, question, Google the answer if you don't know what it is. Read the back of a label. Call a manufacturer. So that just adds another level of lifeline. For the associate, there's lots of research that shows that as consumers, we still really want to walk in and interact with somebody. To the, to the extent that that keeps brick and mortar alive, we will continue to use those lifelines so that when customers who do want to walk in, and you may not think I know anything, but face-to-face -face you're going to feel more comfortable, we'll give you that opportunity. So how about you, Sebastian? Technology on net, does it make the life of a retail worker better or worse? I suspect I, the answer is going to be neither. Mm. <laughs> I don't. I mean, let's. I just want to step back a second sure. into automation as a structure. I guess I just want to illustrate something about how Cornerstone thinks about this. Because I think it helps maybe articulate how we want investors to think about it. We think about the way in which we work as really five buckets, and I think we either stole this from HBR or something. But it's data collection, prediction, judgment, action, outcome. Data collection, prediction 
judgment, action, outcome. And if you think about automation technologies as we understand them, they all fit within these buckets. Action is robotics. Data collection is sensors. Prediction is what we now understand is becoming machine learning, and outcome is separate. And judgment is my question about where we will go with retail. We think over time these areas of action, so the things that we do manually, will move away. And we see that with the discussions. We see that yesterday's earnings call, the day before the earnings call with Walmart, it was a very heavily technology earnings call, and that hadn't happened before. They haven't spoken that much about technology, and they're also coming, I think, more to discussion about what that means for workers. So that's a positive for us. But that action bucket is really going to, something that we're concerned about. I think it's going to be very heavily automated. So if you are an action-orientated retailer, retail worker, you are in real trouble. Sensors, data collection, checking of outs, their sensors, that's another area where automation does a lot better work. And so this idea of a robot that goes down and checks. Prediction is where Walmart has really always done well. This is about when do you need stock? How often do you need to check things? What scheduling might look like? That's an algorithm. That's a machine learning question. The question for us as retail workers, judgment. It's about talking to people. It's about engaging emotionally. It's about connecting and actually making a decision. Is this a good idea for my company? Is this a good idea for this sale? Is this a good idea for that structure? In our view, productivity gains for workers in retail is going to actually have to come from an expansion of this judgment function. And that's really scary, because we've never put judgment in functions as a really valuable structure. But we're going to have to either recognize that as valuable, or we're going to have to settle for the fact that it's going to be uh, not a very well-populated place for retail workers, and there won't be many retail workers broadly. So I just wanted to say that as sort of how we think about the landscape of automation. The question of then technology going forward is can be sort of classified through that structure. So could I say then, therefore, that those those uh, workers who have or can learn judgment-based skills are going to do quite well, and the rest not so much? I would say that's going to be valuable. That's going to grow in value. Um, I think there's still transition elements, and I like to think about this in sort of somewhat historical terms. I mean, if we look at what we did in the 1850s and the creation of the steam engine, we created a structure whereby people with artisanal skills were replaced by operators, and we saw wages fall, but the number of people in the manufacturing areas actually went up. So it was deflationary wages, but the number of people went up. In the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, when we had the manufacturing boom really post-war and into the 50s, where we electrification of manufacturing, we saw monotonic increases in both the wages of workers and the automation. And so the question is, what part of the automation wave are we in retail right now? Are we in replacement of workers at the very beginning of an automation wave, and that's what we suspect? Or are we going to be in a place, how quickly do we move to a place where retail workers, their skills and pay move monotonically with the automation technologies, so we have that similar feeling that we all, maybe I wasn't there, but nostalgically, supposedly, there was this great time when we had manufacturing jobs that were well paid, and automation technologies were coming in slowly and productively. So actually, that's a great segue to what my next question is, because um, in some of my own reporting, I was exploring the question of whether the move to online retail, what, whether it was creating more or fewer jobs, and whether the jobs paid better or worse. And one of the things I learned is that if you actually measured it correctly, we were creating a lot of jobs in fulfillment centers, which were not actually being counted in many of the usual tallies. And Ellie, I actually spoke to some of your colleagues at Walmart, and I learned, for example, that uh, Walmart.com now has about 15,000 employees. You're o you opened, I think, your first standalone online fulfillment center in Florida just in the last 12 months, hiring a lot of people. And it pays better than your stores. So 
tell me, what, is, what do you think? I mean, um, uh, when sales move to the online from the floor format, does that create better and more jobs in retail? Like, Describe that process. So we certainly see new jobs being created, different jobs than we've ever seen in the past. I think um, you're talking about fulfillment center jobs that certainly didn't exist before. Other examples include um, our online grocery pickup new service, where now you can drive, you can enter your grocery list online and drive up to the store, and someone will have your online shopper, your personal shopper, will have gone through the store, picked out for you um, your grocery list, and bring it to your car, and you get served in your car in less than five minutes. Um, certainly, we never had those jobs um, until a few years ago, and now we have many thousands of them across the U.S. Sorry, but haven't you already built a machine that's like a massive kind of small <laughs> kiosk that already takes the personal shopper out and just does grocery? So that's, that's very different, okay. actually, but that is a separate innovation where you would go and enter... Uh, pre-enter it, yes, and then you would get your package that comes out, okay. but you wouldn't do this for groceries or things like that. Okay. So, so there, so there are differentiating elements here. I need to see what would happen to my eggs when they come <laughs> <know>. down the <laughs> So, so we do see an evolution. I do think we're going to see new and different types of jobs, um, and I, but I do think there are risks, right? I mean, I think let's let's be honest. Um, some of those distribution center jobs you're talking about, there's certainly, as we see, Amazon, for example, has very fully automated distribution centers. And any retailer working in this space has to look at that automation and say, will there be productivity gains for me? Should I consider this as an investment option? Um, I don't know where we'll go with that, but I, I know we're considering it and talking about these things. So some of those jobs, particularly the manual ones, um, particularly some of the sensor ones, right, are definitely ones that um, are going to be at risk. And it's our responsibility as employers, and I think our responsibility as a society, to make sure then that as jobs change, we enable workers to make those transitions successfully through our education system, through our public education system, through our private ed education system, and as employers, how we choose to educate people to continue to work in these environments is going to be very critical. Uh, if I could just, um, do the fulfillment jobs, how do they pay relative to the stores? So they do pay relatively better, um, but it really depends on location, um, right? The local econ economic environment. Um, and some of those jobs pay differently and better because of the type of work we're doing, how well you can track productivity of the individual worker, yeah. uh, and things like that. So different work, different pay. So, so Sade, can you actually weigh in on that? Because does the fact that you might be making a few bucks more in a fulfillment center compensate you for the different yeah. strain of the work? Well, I think, so just before I answer that, just taking a, a step back, I want to make sure we're clear that, you know, there isn't going to be a seamless transition like retail workers that are losing their jobs in a brick and mortar store are going to be able to transition to a fulfillment center, right? A lot of these are in geographies that are far away from where that retail worker might work. You're asking for occupational skills that may be very different, right? It's like a retail salesperson, it's the customer engagement, whatever, yeah. uh, fulfillment center, it's lifting heavy things or truck driving, you know, things that don't transition. Um, and then, so, so just putting that aside, so just with having that, um, I think the fulfillment center jobs, and this is something that NELP has worked on for years before, you know, this changing retail uh, a discussion is that, you know, there are issues with the jobs that are in those fulfillment centers. You know, workers are often misclassified as independent contractors. Um, they often have difficult, you know, it's a high, it's a high violation industry we've, we've found. And so even if, and, you know, I know there's lots of literature saying that um, wages may be higher than in brick and mortar stores, but some literature says it's not. Um, but, you know, it's, and, and, and it may also be because the work is different. Um, 
so it's not, you know, I don't think we can say, well, because it pays $3 more, it's going to be a better job um, when there's lots of other things surrounding it that may not make it a better job. Do you want to weigh in on Well, that? I just wanted to say, you know, uh, um, Greg and I dis disagreed on something in the, in the back room when we were talking, but I serve on the board of an organization called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And one of the things that we focus on is the small business fabric of the United States and supporting small business growing, making sure that we remain uh, viable, a viable industry. And one of the research studies shows that for every one fulfillment job that Amazon creates, they take away, eliminates two sales associate positions. To, so to the extent that you want to argue that a fulfillment jo job is a retail job, um, we will have more, and I, I think you said it correctly that there are studies that show both sides of the payment scale, and I don't really feel like we have an accurate hand on that yet, but um, I do think that, um, I, I, I just wanted to point out that we were in conflict about whether or not the research is accurate and how, sure. how well it works, and I know for me, being in an area, I, I do hire a lot of sales associates, and they couldn't transition into fulfillment jobs, and so I do feel very protective of wanting to make sure that those jobs uh, stay in the store as opposed to in a warehouse. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I actually uh, wanted to give a shout out actually to Walmart and a few other companies that we found in our report. One of the questions for us as investors is where where are we going with these companies that are retail companies? Where will they be? I mean, I, we spoke to a CEO and they said retail will look a lot like it looks right now in two years' time, but it'll look nothing like it looks right now in by 2025. And that's mm -hmm. seven years away. So we're in a very strange time. One of the things we liked, and I guess this is, all I've, oh, I, want, I would love Ellie's opinion on it. The question for us was, retail now sits with an incredible level of, inter, of human capital right at this moment. There are hundreds, millions of jobs within this structure. And yet the, the demand for the next iteration of jobs are actually a significant evolution in our education system. And when I listen to earnings, call, earnings calls with these companies like uh, Target and others talking about their evolution into a tech-enabled company, my head just goes, where are you getting the people who can do that? Are you competing with Silicon Valley because you are going to pay up? Yeah. Yet you have 300,000 workers. And my question to you is, is there a moment in time right now where a win-win exists? Maybe it's just a window. Where you are actually to say, loyalty to our company is, re is repaid with tuition, is repaid with education that goes beyond the day-to-day -day and prepares you for the next. And Walmart has actually done that. And I think that's a testament to their thinking because I think it's la kind of laughable that, co that retailers say they're going to be super tech-enabled and they're going to continue to hire out of the same retail pool and then they're going to say, well, we'll get some engineers from Silicon Valley. And those guys are and there are a lot of my guys, but those people are um, expensive and you're probably going to have to pay a lot to do that. So one of the questions for us about workers in the retail sector is how do you choose as a retail worker where you might work again because you're making that choice. And one of the questions we had that we told them to ask is do you pay tuition some form of reimbursement going forward? Now that, that should be contingent <coughs> on a lot of factors including how long you've been there, but it, it's one of those moments where it's like if policy is not going to come to the table, and that's probably what I'm talking about. Um, companies can actually find something there that matters. So I'm going to come to you, Ellie, but I'm going to set the question up as follows, which is that um, everybody seems to agree that for workers to thrive, they need more training, different skills, and so forth. And uh, in the best of all worlds, they'd be paid better. But you guys have to make a profit. We're going to get killed by your competitors. So my question is, can you pay workers and train them better because it's a 
expensive and make a profit. And I think Walmart's experience wasn't so great when they publicly announced how much they were going to invest in training and pay, right? Yes, yeah, so this, so this is an interesting conundrum um, based a bit on sort of our capitalist system right now and a bit of short-termism that we see related to our system, which would be interesting to explore a little bit. Um, so Walmart made a big announcement a couple of years ago that we were investing $2.7 billion in increasing workers' wages, improving staffing in our stores, and investing in training. Um, since that, since then, and, and, and the, the year that that happened, there were two significant drop, drops in our stock price. The day we made the announcement, and then about six months later um, at our quarterly earnings about this time of year, a couple of years ago. Um, very significant drops. The, the street penalized us for these investments, which were long-term investments for us to increase the abilities of our workforce. Since then, you may have heard that we have also um, begun some new investments in building academies across the US. So we now have 200 physical locations that we have built uh, near our best-in-class stores to bring managers, department managers, assistant managers, store managers to see what great looks like and how to run their stores well. It's in-seat in classroom training as well as on the floor, two to six weeks of training that they receive every single department manager, assistant manager, store manager. By the end of this year, we will have trained 225,000 people in the US, making us, we believe, one of the largest training organizations in the US. However, what we don't talk about, and really can't very much, is what it took to make that investment, because we will be penalized. So it's, it's, it's very interesting, the conundrum we face is that we need to continue. We feel we both have a responsibility to the business, to the customers, and to the associates to make these investments. Um, but we really can't talk about it very much. So someone sold your stock, but now it's at a record high. So whoever sold on the basis of that investment in their labor didn't do so the well. The short-termism, right? You should right? probably fire them as your investment advisor. That's right. See, the question to us was, what does workers represent in a store? And when we looked at Walmart, they were empowering their workers. You do not want to go, you know a store when you walk into it that the workers are paid badly. You can feel yeah. it. It's visceral. We know that we, mission measurement out of Chicago, it actually proves that the highest factor outside of price, quality, and convenience is the treatment of workers. People like Costco because it treats workers well. So this is what the, we, we find sort of short-termism an interesting topic, and we can talk about it a long time as investors, but what's so funny is those people who sold out of Walmart because of that missed out on $93 yesterday. And so, well done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> successful trade, that one. So one other thing I wanted to add on, because I think, um, I think there is much more opportunity in the future around the investments we can make in workers. And to your point, one of my vision, one thing I would love us to see do and that we're exploring right now is how do we translate the credit you're getting or the experiences and the learning you're getting in the academies or on the floor with your manager into college credits. And we have a vision where we believe, and we're hoping to pursue it, that we can actually get you part way, most of the way, who knows, to an associate's degree simply through the training that you receive on the job at Walmart. And then we want to bring you the rest of the way through supports. So um, we, we believe the educational system is not getting, uh, getting us uh, entry level employees that can really be successful. And therefore, uh, the only thing we can do is make those investments ourselves at this point. What about you, Gina? For a small store uh, enterprise like yours, can you pay your workers what you think they deserve and train them the way you think they can and make a profit? We can. I think the, the missing link in this is the customer response to that and how, 
how much they are still willing to shop. So Ace, I'm a member of the Ace Hardware Co-op, which is a whole other business model that we should talk about at some point, a B Corp and, and uh, the co-op model uh, as a counterbalance to the shareholders um, having that kind of power over, uh, over a business. Uh, but Ace issued a study a couple years ago, last year actually, um, to study whether our best customers were really loyal to us and what they determined and was uh, cross-referenced through uh, the credit cards that customers were using. Our best customers, as measured by their loyalty card, were shopping 30, 30 more times a year at one of our competitors. So to the extent that our customers want us to pay more and want us to have that you all know, you, you come to a small mom and pop shop because you know you're going to get service and you're going to walk in and the first thing you're going to do is complain about the bad service you got at a big box. It happens all day long, but they're still 30 more times a year going to that big box to shop instead of thinking of coming to our store. So I think we can do it. We're fighting tooth and nail to do it here in the district and in Baltimore. But I think there is a, a the missing component, I think, that no one talks about is the customer's, the customer's responsibility. <coughs> Today, isn't there a role for policy here yeah. in, in the sense that uh, the, the nature of capitalism is that uh, the market share goes to the lowest cost yeah. uh, leader, right? Do, does is there a role for policy to put a floor under how low you can go, whether it's in terms of wages, working conditions, benefits, Well, that used to be what the minimum wage was, was an actual floor that meant yeah. something. And so, you know, businesses like yours, let's say that wanted that, you know, pay better and, you know, wouldn't have to compete with businesses that are paying less. I think the problem is that we have you know, we have a minimum wage on the federal level that's seven twenty-five an hour. Um, you know that. I mean, most companies don't even pay that because you can't get anybody for seven twenty-five an hour. But they're not paying that much more. And so, if we had a meaningful wage floor, um, you know, then all of the competition among businesses would would happen above that. And I think that you know, companies can only do so much, right? I mean, they're like there's 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 a reason why we have policy, um, and I think we're just so lacking in it that it's like, yeah. Well, could you and Ellie right now come up with a set of policies that sure. Walmart and yeah. agree on that yeah. would solve this? Come yeah. on, let's see it. That benefits yeah. small retailers. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Come on, let's solve yeah. this whole problem right here. Yeah. Well, at no, the that's Aspen. an interesting point. Yeah. I mean, often the group that gets shortchanged in this is the small business and you know yeah. Walmart has vast resources and can do things that other companies can't right we've been talking about today I'm always mindful that you know we may talk policy change Walmart may be able to cope just fine but there are a lot of other small businesses that can't adapt as well um, when those costs are imposed um, and so I think we need to be mindful of the whole ecosystem would a higher minimum wage be on balance good or bad for you? Well, I was a, I was a, a fierce advocate for it. I spoke nationally um, to get the federal minimum wage um, raised for the last five years um, all over the hill and all over the country and definitely advocated on behalf of it here in D.C. and Baltimore. So knowing to some extent it would be very difficult for the business, it financially it was a huge, made a huge impact, but we were already paying more anyway and I wanted to be vocal because we were already paying more. Uh, and I believed in it. So we just, we agreed we would do whatever it takes to raise it. Uh, I used to say, oh, I pay more than Walmart, so I, people want to work here. And then I started advocating on everybody raising their wages, knowing that I was going to level that playing field. But I'm glad we did. I'm proud, my employees are proud that we did. Um, what other aspects of the policy environment? Let's, let's focus a little bit more on policy. What other aspects of the yeah. policy toolkit are available that can help in this respect? Or is there stuff that we can do on the uh, public funding of training and education or of, uh, I don't know, whether it's childcare, things like that, that can sort of like say, okay, well, um, employers have a 
responsibility to maximize profit for their shareholders. Uh, workers have a responsibility to maximize how well they can do for their families. What can policy do to reconcile those two things? Are there any, do you have well, any other thoughts other than the minimum wage? Amazon for decades has not had to pay taxes in lots of places, yeah. which has been a huge detriment for small businesses because why would you come into my store and pay taxes when you can order online for free? So that one alone would make such a financial impact over anything else I think we can do. Don't they now pay, uh, uh, collect sales I don't, tax? I don't they think do they do everywhere. No? Okay. Others? So I think you touched on two really good ones, one of which is childcare, right? I mean, childcare inherently is a... Yeah, is if we had a comprehensive system of childcare in this country, it would benefit women, it would benefit families, men as well, right? Um, the fact that the United States does not have a set of policies that enable workers to have a quality, affordable, accessible place to put their children and participate in the economy is a tremendous detriment to our economy writ large, right? Um, so I think that. Number one is something we should be focused on. And then number two, I do think the public education system, uh, which I went through, is not delivering at this point in time the skills that workers need to be successful. So if we look at service sector workers, 40% of service sector workers lack basic literary, literacy and numeracy skills. That is very challenging, um, even for an entry-level re retail worker where you don't need a lot of skills to get a foot in the door. If you can't read and, and, and do basic math, you're going to struggle in our environment. Uh, and there's, there's a lot that we can do to help, but it shouldn't be just a burden on the employers to, to bridge that gap. Can I name one more? Sorry. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't. Um, the, the, financial, the financial options for starting a business, too, and policies um, surrounding um, getting a loan to start a business, even through the, the Small Business Administration, is very onerous for someone who's never started a business before, for someone who wants to start a co-op. Um, we bank with National Cooperative Bank, which was chartered by the federal government because banks historically refused to fund co-ops. And it's been decades since they've been chartered, but it's still very difficult if you walk into a bank as a member of a co-op. They don't understand how it works. They want to see that you're a nationally accredited retailer, which means you, know, you own a subway, because subways Subway in some part has created that, uh, the financial footing for that business that is not available to a co-op member or someone who's never owned that, that type of business before. So I think there are a lot of policy options or opportunities in terms of funding small businesses and giving, giving people the resources they need to start that could happen. Sebastian, that's actually, um, I want to bring that back to you because you deal with a lot of institutional investors and so on. What's your message to them or what's the message you get from them in terms of, hey, you know, you sold Walmart because you thought they were spending too much on employees and you came to regret it. How do you sort of um, take that message broadly across the investor universe? And maybe Walmart was just like an anomaly. Maybe typically that was a good trade for them to do. Mm. I mean, if you thought that Best Buy, excuse me, Circuit City was playing your employee, their employees too much, that was a pretty good short, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, as a, yeah, I mean, I, as you knew from my accent, Circuit City is not in my world. I wasn't here when that occurred. But my question to always for any structure is this, right? Wall Street has a set of incentives. And in some sense, our firm is a built, we believe, to believe that integrating environmental social governance factors in the investment process is better investing. And we have uh, enjoy talking to asset managers about how that works. And we spend a lot of time. We have our clients' money with a lot of these asset managers. But we enjoy a better conversation with the asset owners. We think pension funds, endowments, high net worth individuals, family offices, these are the people whose money it actually is. 
and they are very worried. And so the question to us is, how do we tell the story of the concern of an asset owner to a person who is trading day to day in a way that manages fiduciary responsibility, but also recognizes that the financial system is, is a facilitator of outcomes, that, that the financial system is, is a force and should be a force for good. And the question to us is, we liked to pose these questions throughout to asset managers on behalf of our clients to say, look, you made that Walmart trade. That was an interesting trade. Let us talk about that trade. And when they say, well, as some, I think, a sell-side analyst said, when um, one of the airlines raised, actually, the, 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 the story is that the, you know, that person being dried off the United flight caused a smaller drop in share price than the small increase in the worker pay for another airline. And our question was, why is that happening? Why does customer service result problems result in less drops in share price than the increase in wages? And our view is because it takes time. Because we have to ask the question as pension funds, endowments, high net individuals, we have time to make the right investments, to ask the right questions, to be involved in proxy voting, to actually say to ourselves, shaping the economy that we want. And I think asset managers, I'm not saying they make good or bad decisions, but they are service providers. They do a service for these, these groups. And so we are targeting the asset owners. We are asking them and saying, have you seen what's happening to retail? What would you like to understand about how your money is managed? And so we find that to be an interesting leverage because the question of um, asset managers is, you know, they, they do a job, and, they some, and, and a lot of them do it very, very well. And so the point was not to say that they were bad people or, or that they're bad workers. But isn't there also kind of a show-me attitude on the part of Wall Street, which puts the burden on the company to say, we're spending more on this, and you're going to be happy because we did? Uh, or, for example, in the case of United, maybe because they did not have a history of dragging patient paper uh, passengers off of airplanes. People thought this was going to be a passing thing, you know what I mean? Maybe in the case of Walmart, because you had not proven that investing in your employees had been a path to higher profits, there was a sort of skepticism. Now we contrast with, with Amazon. It seems that every time they spend more money, their stock goes up mm -hmm. because they have a track record of making that work. So Walmart, they're kind of like Pavlovian in this respect, you know, that when they see Jeff Bezos spend more money, they say, well, I don't know why, but it always seems to work for him, so mm -hmm. I'm buying more of the stock. But when, well, you know, you, you see what I'm saying? So is there a responsibility? Can we really hold that against Wall Street? Isn't there a responsibility on the part of you as a store owner to demonstrate to your stakeholders that those <laughs> sorts of investments matter? I don't even know how to answer that. No, I mean, I can't. I'm just, I'm a small retailer, right? I can't. I can't answer that at all. I can't answer to Wall Street. I, I, I can only anecdotally speak about my experience in the markets that we're in and the challenges that I face overcoming those obstacles. One being having a landlord give me space um, as opposed to giving it to a McDonald's, for example, because they're nationally accredited and bigger and the banks like looking at their, their financials better than mine. So, I, no. My answer to you is no. <laughs> but, so this would be a great opportunity for you to explain how the co-op model works for you. Does that overcome some of the uh, obstacles you've just so mentioned? So from a space perspective, from funding and, and, and uh, space acquisition, location acquisition, no. Being a part of the co-op does not actually help, although National Cooperative Bank helps from funding uh, a funding perspective. Uh, the co-op, ACE is a purchasing co-op. And so the retailers, there's 5,000 ACE stores now nationally. There's about 3,000 owners, I guess. Uh, we actually own the co-op. 
And because it's a purchasing co-op, they go to the vendors and they aggregate the prices. They negotiate the prices and warehouse it for me. So it helps in, um, in terms of price competitiveness, being able to keep up with the big boxes. People, uh, studies have shown that customers think that local hardware stores are 17 to 20% higher in price than the big box. Uh, we can't, we fight that all the time and I can't compete, but ACE helps at least for the real pricing. They can't help with the perception very much, but they help with the pricing. So they aggregate the prices, they warehouse the products I purchase from them. We own the business, we get a dividend. I call them my personal discover card. I get a dividend at the end of the year based on how loyal I am to my co-op. So they do help with, um, if I were to just tomorrow decide I was gonna start a hardware store and not be a member of a co-op, and so few of us are now that nobody would do that, uh, I wouldn't have the wraparound training services that ACE provides. I wouldn't have the national media that ACE provides. Uh, I wouldn't have the purchasing power. So they do help in that regard. And I don't have shareholders like a Walmart or an Amazon that I am beholden to. So I don't have to worry about any of those things, nor does ACE. Uh, you mentioned something else when we were speaking earlier, which is the changing demographics of the retail population. You said that in addition to all these other obstacles, a lot of retail, especially small enterprises, have to deal with the aging of their ownership and so forth. And I imagine that might be an issue with the employee pool as well. Maybe it's hard to find the right age and the right quality. Is that an issue and how do we overcome that? Well, it's funny, when I opened my first location, it was in Washington in Logan Circle, and everyone said, oh, the old guy will come work for you. I was very, people said that all the time. Who's that old guy? Well. Washington, D.C., at least now, is really a city of young people. But nationally, more people are moving into cities. And I think that's helping us um, grow and be stronger than our counterparts in suburban areas in particular, where there are many more um, competitive disadvantages than there are in the city. So I think that, the, and again, the aging population that you mentioned, the average ACE owner is, a 60, is 60 years old with no succession plan. About 40% don't have a succession plan. So to the extent that the bigger retailers are continue to grow, to grow market share and be stronger or online retailers, they will have that advantage because the small mom and pops across the country are aging without succession and just closing. Ellie, do you see a world where eventually most of what you do in stores will have gone online? And if not, what brings that process most of what we do on stores. You mean most of what we sell on stores? What I'm, sorry, what I meant to say yeah. is like online is uh, I think roughly 8% of retail now. Mm. I don't know what the number is for Walmart. What, do you publish that figure? I don't think we do. Uh, okay. <laughs> will eventually online be bigger than brick and mortar? And will that result in some Boy. catastrophic decline in That's jobs? That's a hard prediction to make. Yeah. It's a forward-looking statement as well. Yeah. I'm not worried about making that <laughs> I think there will always be a place for brick and mortar. I think people inherently find shopping a, a social, fun experience if, if given to them correctly. Um, and uh, it's a place where people go and meet and spend time with their families and may even increase um, in sort of social value in the future, um, depending on how retailers respond to customers' preferences. I always think there will be a place for, uh, for brick and mortar. I think online is supremely convenient, but there are some inconveniences with it, right? Food is still a huge challenge online and will continue to be so services continue to be problematic. Um, um, and sometimes people just want to go in and hold and touch and see and feel what they're buying. Um, I don't think that changes fundamentally in the future. I think it's a mix. Uh, does anybody else want to offer a prediction on that? Well, I think that so much of what's purchased online is returned that until technology and, and I guess brick and mortar answers the question of returns, people will still want to, they'll still need the physical location. I heard a couple statistics recently. One was that millennials, 90% uh, of millennials surveyed 
want to do business with a business that has a brick and mortar location. So that's that bodes well. And then uh, the other one was if, and I don't remember the percentage, but um, online sales go up when a business has a brick and mortar presence. I mean, I think there's a reason why Amazon is opening bookstores, right? Because they've realized their online sales will go back up once they're in a neighborhood and people make that connection. So I, I think that I think retail brick and mortar will will outweigh for at least the foreseeable future online sales. Do you have a view on that, Sebastian? Yeah, I mean, we do. We we we, we have a view on everything. Um, we have two. We believe, in some sense, we're trying to ask companies this question: Where do you think your brick and mortar will go? And the way we've asked that question is really around two types of sort of stores: experience, so where you go in, you feel like you're part of something. It's a showroom. People are engaged. People are very thoughtful. And then convenience, which we are starting to see with Amazon Go and others, where it is literally as quickly as you can get in and out, you are in and out. And uh, the, the, the joke being that in grocery stores, we used to put the milk at the back of the store so we'd make people walk four aisles and hopefully they'd pressure buy some stuff. We can't do that anymore. You've got to put milk at the front. And so the question to us about retailers, we do not see a future for retailers who are muddling through the experience cons cons um, convenience issue. We see strength in experience, and we, and we see strength in convenience. And so we built in our report, which is available online, is really this discussion of where different companies are going. And we don't mean that, and we think that has an implication for wages. I think experienced store employees will be paid quite well. We think it's possible a convenience store could either be a literally one Walmart greeter type person, and I apologize for the characterization, but a person who just lets you in and out of the store and has no relations with the rest, it's all automated. Or it could be a very technically trained person who manages as almost like an engineer, a sort of a small, highly technically enabled little store. And so we don't know how that will play out, but we think the, the era of general retail in a mortar, brick and mortar store is, is coming to an end. As soon as we figure out how to get rid of shoplifters. <laughs> That's the question. So leakage, leakage and all that stuff will be very much the question. Um, you know, uh, the, the same said about the, the, well, the self-scan. Stuff still gets stolen off your front stoop, though. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. yeah, I mean, that's probably got something to do with income inequality as much as anything, right? Like, yeah. we should need to be paying people enough that they can afford all the things they want. Uh, we'll see. So today, one of the things that comes yeah. up in this online world is that the, uh, um, in online, you can track worker productivity much more carefully. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing for the worker? Well, I feel like, I mean, haven't we read studies that say that worker productivity is going up, but there's been no corresponding increase in their working conditions? So I feel like for, I mean, it's not, I mean, the worker productivity, tracking their worker product, productivity on the one hand is just, a, you know, kind of a big brother, like, work harder, work harder, work harder. Um, because if it, you know, if it was to the benefit of, you know, businesses understanding, like, you know, is, is this the most productive way to yeah. employ my workers? I mean, it's not, um, it hasn't really correlated, I guess, to... And what's the impact on the psychological health or the stress level of a worker knowing that every minute of the day their output is being measured? I mean, I think a lot of workers have that stress already yeah. in some of these stores, even if they don't necessarily know that their worker productivity is being tracked by a computer, um, you know, because, I mean, just to reiterate, like, you know, apart from wages and scheduling and other stuff, you know, a lot of these jobs are really insecure in that workers fear being f fired. I mean, one of the things that you had said about other policy interventions that would improve working conditions that I was thinking in my head, but you know, wasn't 
quite the right place in the conversation was that, you know, going back to the nostalgia point that Sebastian made, one of the reasons, you know, back in the 50s or whatever, we had strong unions and we had an ability for workers to collectively bargain with their employers to be able to improve working conditions and to be able to be part of a voice in, you know, what is happening in the workplace. Okay, productivity is increasing, our profits are down, you know, whatever. Be, be a part of the collective decision-making into how do we make this business better um, and how do we improve our lives, how do we improve the company's bottom line. That's not happening now. And so workers feel, workers feel tracked even if there isn't an actual computer that's tracking them. Workers feel insecure about the wages that they're currently getting and if they're going to be fired, um, not just because of technological changes, but just because of you know, the fact that they are so powerless. Um, so. I think the productivity thing is just another thing, just another. Good another point. Tool. Yeah, uh, I'd like to bring all of you into the conversation. We have a mic. Uh, sorry, just put your hand up, uh, and someone will come to you with a microphone. Um, uh, right over here, please. And uh, where's Claire? She's the one who's going to. Oh, there you are. You'll let me know if there's. A, okay. All right. Okay. Uh, right here, please. Hi there. Uh, thank you so much for a wonderful panel. It's been very informative. Uh, my name is Mara Brown-Ali. I work for American Growth Sol uh, Solutions, which is an apprenticeship-focused uh, organization. My question is for you, Ellie. You had mentioned that uh, Walmart is heavily involved in training right now. Um, and I'm not sure if maybe I was drawing an implication, but it sort of seems like that's not necessarily Walmart's competitive advantage. And I wanted to understand what Walmart's point of view is on apprenticeship, on sort of giving a more formal training, um, if that's in your plans or if that's something you would be exploring, if you could just speak to that. It's a great question. So um, we're in the business, as I sort of alluded to, because uh, there's not a great framework at this point in time in the education system to get the skills we need in our business. Um, I think were it otherwise, we might not be investing as heavily. It's out of necessity. Um, we are open and exploring many different options, right, as to the best avenue to get um, qualified, skilled people both in the door and moving up within the company. We're thinking about apprenticeships. We're thinking about credentialing. We're thinking about pass to college um, credit attainment. Um, we're thinking about how technology can help improve um, teaching in our stores. So one of the things we use now in our academies is virtual reality to show different scenarios that associates might, um, like Black Friday scenario, without actually having to go to be in Black Friday and deal with the insanity that that is. Um, so we are taking a really broad approach at looking at a lot of different options. And apprenticeship is certainly one that we have been discussing internally. Yeah. Somebody else have thoughts on apprenticeships? Okay. Uh, question right here. Hi, I'm uh, Ryan Madari, economic policy advisor. Um, my question is for Gina. So, right now, you know, there's hundreds of municipalities tripping over each other trying to offer hundreds of millions of dollars to a giant company like Amazon mm -hmm. to set up shop. And I'm I'm wondering, first of all you know, politicians who claim to care so much about small businesses, how does it affect you when a giant company like that's about to get hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks, interest-free loans, land grants, whatever it's going to be? What are the downstream effects of that on a small business that ostensibly has to compete with, uh, you know, one of those big companies? And how does that The question makes me so sad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. I've, I've been asked that question a lot over the last couple weeks because... Um, you know, it's mayoral season in Washington, D.C., and 
and uh, they want support, and I want to support the mayor that doesn't want to. I understand the, the political dance that has to happen when you want to add jobs and in, in a big industry to your region, but um, it's, it's very concerning to me because I don't think you can support small business and truly believe any of the research that has occurred, particularly about Amazon, and think that it does anything positive for small business. I mean, I think that's just, the, yeah, it's a bit of an emotional answer, but I, I don't know how anything, I don't know how bringing Amazon to the region will do anything good for anyone. I mean, you've already mentioned that, for example, you have to compete with Amazon's ability to not charge sales taxes in many jurisdictions. What about your property taxes? If the District of Columbia were to, say, offer tax breaks to a large company, does that show up in higher taxes for you? Well, it's difficult. You know, this is a triple net city, and so when I go talk to a landlord and they want $25 triple net for a lease or $45 sorry, triple, what's triple net? Triple net means that I have to pay the landlord's taxes and insurance. So they're giving all of this money to big industry to come to the district or the, the region, but if I'm going to go talk to a landlord about any space, I am paying his or her taxes, I am paying his or her insurance on the property, and so it just keeps ticking up the, the, um, the prices. And I think, you know, we've always been considered a high road employer. And I would just once love for someone to come to me and say, oh my gosh, you're an amazing business. I want you in my neighborhood and I'm going to pay your taxes while you're there. I know I don't create the e economic impact statistics that someone would say an Amazon will and perhaps they, they will create. Uh, but for just once, I would love for someone to say, yeah, you don't have to pay my taxes. We'll give you that benefit. Yeah, but this is the point I was trying to make was that, in fact, the more money uh, mayors give to the Amazons of the world, the more they have to charge taxes to you sure. in order because sure. someone's got to pay the taxes. Well, we have a surplus in the district. Yeah. They shouldn't be right. charging a tax anyway. I did hear recently that the baseball tax <laughs> is hopefully going to sunset soon, so we will no longer be supporting the baseball stadium. So I'm happy about that. But yeah, no, it's a very good point. It goes up across the board, and everyone thinks it's a rising tide mentality, but someone has to pay that bill, and sometimes it's sometimes it's the smallest retailer yeah. paying that bill. Yeah, they never got to the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you see What's them in the, the playoffs. Is like, what kind of return are we getting on that anyway? Uh, sorry. Um, uh, there is a question in the back row there, I, I see. Uh, yes, thank you. My name is Steve Miller, and I'd like to return to a question that Greg raised during the middle of the uh, uh, discussion about the role of public policy in reconciling the, the workers' uh, interest in raising their welfare and stockholder interest in raising their prices. Uh, looking at the two big policy debates today, what is the significance of, of public policy on health care? And I don't mean ACA, I mean health care writ large, public policy. And what are the uh, panel's views on uh, the impact of tax rates, both for corporations and for partnerships direct ownerships and other things. Thank you. So Jeff, to clarify, I mean, are you talking about, for example, the current tax reform plans? General issue of, of tax rates, Yeah. Which, so, which is part of the policy debate. So are taxes, whether it's just general corporate taxes, partnership taxes, or healthcare taxes affecting your ability to pay, to hire and pay employees well? Is that? Well. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, we hear, for instance, that business, small businesses, for instance, are, have a burden of, you know, uh, and workers have a burden to, to find health care. And obviously, there's the burden of paying for the health care under various kinds of plans. So yeah. it's more than the cost. It's, you know, it's the burden for the workers, for instance, okay, yeah. sure. uh, as well as the cost. And, you know, what the impact 
of, 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 of corporate tax policy is in reconciling these two differences. I'm not, uh, okay. that's, those are my questions. All right, do healthcare costs, are they a real issue in terms of like being able to pay, hire and pay employees well? And can we fix that with the corporate tax system somehow? Who wants to grab that one? Sebastian. <laughs> Yay, me. Finance guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in 2015, we looked at the fast food sector as our first sector of automation and actually came up with some interesting ideas around. Um, but one of the pressures in the fast food sector at that time was people's, people's perception of the rising healthcare costs. And yet it has disappeared from any earnings calls and other questions. So I can't speak to how. I know administratively it's, it's incredible how much work companies have to do to administer healthcare through this process. Um, I can't speak to the rising healthcare costs or the, or the ACA or how that structures, but what I can say is um, the questions of healthcare disappeared very quickly from earnings calls. So either something overtook it, probably automation and now tax, but also in many ways I think companies are of the opinion like this is this is this system, this is what we're sort of lumped with and it's a cost of doing business. And so. In many ways, I don't know. It's like asking the fish, like, how's the water? Like, this is just <laughs> what they deal with, right? <laughs> and then uh, secondly, with the tax questions, I mean, the tax, the tax reform itself, I think if you look at where corporate profits are, they're very, very high. And while people can talk about what will happen under a changed corporate tax regime, I would say this, even logically, if you looked at an income statement, Workers' pays, payments are up in the expense line and taxes are down the bottom. And so when you save on taxes, generally you just drop it to the next line and it's net income. So it's dividends and earnings for the company. So it's a complex time, but I would say, um, yeah, there's implications for workers and we need to think about it. So I would just add one thing, and it's not a direct answer to your question, but I, I do think one of the implications of the burden of healthcare costs that we're seeing, not at Walmart, but you can see happening in society, is the gig economy, which is this increasing contractor workforce. And one of the reasons that some companies are going that route is because of the, the burdens of costs, such as healthcare. Right? And we didn't get into that area of discussion, but there's a whole lot of stuff that we could say about you know, worker protections and quality and, and all sorts of things that have to do with the gig economy and how it's continuing to grow. Do you want to touch on the gig? No? Okay. Uh, I think we have a question from Twitter. Where does reentry fall into the dialogue about workers, given that many retailers are unwilling to hire this group? Reentry. 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 Like formerly incarcerated. No, formerly incarcerated. Yeah. Formerly incarcerated. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. Returning citizens. All right. Sorry. Uh, um, I work with several. We. My organization works with several organizations who support um, folks returning to the workforce. We have banned the box in 2003 when we opened our first location. We just started crossing it out of applications because at the time it was still legal. In the district now, the box has been banned, so it's illegal to have it on the application. I think that um, I, we hope that we hope that prisons will empty, that the, the pipeline to prison system is will be looked at or lessened over the, the coming years, which means there will be more people coming back into the workforce who need a second or third or sometimes fourth chance. And I think that it has to be a real conversation at all levels of um, whether it be policy or just business owners talking about it being a challenge because there is a huge population in the district and in Baltimore who have a record and they need a job. Um, I work with an organization in California, um, Homeboys Industries, or I support them, and one of their mottos is nothing stops a bullet like a job, and they truly believe that in order to keep people 
out of prison um, or safe once they've returned from prison. They have to have a livelihood. Humans want to work. So I, it needs to be a big conversation. Yeah, and I would just yeah. say, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Oh. Um, we were one of the first major employers to sign Ban the Box. And um, you know, I think our point of view is anyone with the right skills and attitudes who wants to come and have a successful job at Walmart, we have a, one of the lowest barriers to entry of any employer, even in retail. Um, you don't need a college degree to run a store. We have executives who have high school degrees. I mean, it, we, we're truly a meritocracy. And um, you know, I think anyone at Walmart would say we would open with open arms except anyone who has been formally incarcerated um, as long as they passed the required background checks and came wanting to work. I think just uh, to, to add just another barrier to, to entry um, in addition to ban the box, which or to um, reentry issues is a lot of, you know, there's a good chunk of employers that still require credit checks for employees, which is a huge issue because you're basically being penalized for having bad credit. And why do you have bad credit? Well, because you didn't have the money to pay your bills. Why didn't you have money to pay your bills? Because you're working in a low-wage job <laughs> or you're yeah. in jail or, yeah. you know, like any, yeah. any number of reasons. So thinking about policy interventions beyond ban the box that can really expand opportunity for people of color, um, especially. Um, I think it's, that's, that's a really important one. Uh, question there. Hi, uh, Randy Sim. A uh, question, I think, for Gina. Uh, you mentioned that you had been a supporter of raising the minimum wage, I think. Uh, do you think of yourself as a very atypical, unusual small business owner? Because I usually think of the organizations that support or represent small business as being opposed to all of these policies. So could you, is that a correct impression? And, and so we, we tend to be a little atypical, although I will tell you that most, you're right, most organizations or associations that, that um, Chambers of Commerce, for example, or the National Retail Federation, we, we are typically in opposing camps for some of those policies. But if you talk to or read a lot of the statistics about the research done on who pays more across the board, small business, small businesses, wages tend to be higher than, than larger businesses. Does that mean does that mean that the organizations are not really accurately representing or fairly representing small business? Well, the I, ones don't, that I don't know if I should answer that. <laughs> I mean, I might say yes. I don't know. I, to be completely honest, I haven't participated with a lot of those organizations because of that perception um, and because I want to feel comfortable to be vocal about saying, hey, we should raise the wages, for example. Um, but I don't think, I don't think, at least in, in D.C., that, that those organizations represent what small business is truly doing and is willing to truly willing to support. Yeah, and I think we wanted to add two things to that debate was was first of all 36% of retail workers currently receive some form of government subsidy like SNAP and other things. So in many ways you're also as taxpayers the employees of these retail workers and that's a concern for us. And when we looked at the top 30 the top 30 biggest retailers in the US only about five of them paid within what we considered to be the living wage by the Health and Human Services Department. And so the question also of wages is, this is not a free lunch. Just because you don't pay someone enough doesn't mean that they, that's all they consume. What they require then is all these questions about um, all these structures and subsidies. And so my question to companies is, how long do you think that can last for? And that's always the question. I mean, you know, so uh, we think that's, that's worth a discussion within the minimum wage, is how long do you think you're going to be a, a, a recipient of those kind of subsidies? Uh, Maybe forever. What do they say? Uh, yes, here. 
I'm Dr. Caroline Poplin. I'm a primary care physician and an attorney and the voice of the past. I was born in the 1940s. I'm older than all of you. Um, and I remember when, when a, man could, a man could have a factory job and support a wife at home, two kids, buy a house, buy a car, send his kids through school, and retire on a decent pension. Um, these days, um, I, I represent whistleblowers who sue pharmaceutical companies for off-label marketing. And my question is about the stock market and how the role of it has changed. Um, back in the 50s, uh, a large company sort of made its plans without looking at the instant impact of the stock market. You looked at profits and plans and how well it was doing, and the whole thing was much longer, and the stock market was around to provide uh, financing. That was its role, uh, except for, you know, speculators and people from the 20s and stuff like that. Um, now, I can see in what I do now that one reason drug prices are so high is because if you don't, there's this huge pressure from the stock market for um, blockbuster drugs every year. Uh, at the highest possible prices, and as new things come on the market, their prices are even higher. Uh, and your question is? The question <laughs> is, do you see the same thing, and is that what's driving low wages for uh, retail, low, low wages, as low as the lowest wages you can get away with for hiring employees? Sebastian, I want you to handle that one, because you kind of live in that world. Sure. Yeah. Look, I'm not going to blame Wall Street for everything. Uh, as, as a sort of Come on. No, um, <laughs> I mean, there's just as much questions about who Wall Street serves, right? These are pension funds that are supplying money for teachers and firemen and, and fire women and ambulance and EMS. And so this question of the role of the financial industry is what our firm is really asking questions about. Um, you know, the, the, the question of short-termism in many ways is a reflection of a lot of pressures. The questions of why retailers do what they do, how much that reflects their concern about stock market, I mean, it's not hard to tell. You just go on and look at how the executives are paid, right? The there are incentive packages that are published each year, and so the question would be, as an investor, we're orientated to the long term. I want, industry I want company owners to be more orientated to the long term. If you go on and it says, oh yeah, we only pay them based on how much the share price went up this um, over the last three quarters, then you're probably going to work out pretty quickly this company's going to be orientated that way because incentives speak. And so the, you know, that, that for me makes the back and forth of this really interesting and a really positive, a powerful discussion. We want companies to be orientated to make money cumulatively in a compounding way that allows our, for our, our clients to get the money they need to pay people scholarships, to pay their grants, to pay their benefits. That's our orientation. And while we see the change, we hopefully, we're part of a change, hopefully, in that sense. I think we have time for one more. Uh, yes. Oh, sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't see you, but no, it's, no, you. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you, everyone. This has been very interesting. My name is Jonathan Rose. I work with Oxfam America. There was a recent article that came out in Bloomberg, and I also read an article about it in New Republic about it seems straight out of some of the old uh, 80s Wall Street type movies re relevant to the retail sector, where basically it said we have JCPenney's closing down, we have 
uh, Payla shoe stores closing down, and it's because of the uh, Wall Street investors who come in, and then they 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 uh, one of the stories is about how they are having these companies sell off their land and then forcing the companies to pay rent to to themselves and that kind of story. Uh, I'm, you may have read it, and you can you can uh, you can tell me what whether I'm getting it right. But the the basic idea was uh, right. uh, the the question is is this true? And then a more dynamic question would be in the future if you're talking about companies investing heavily in their workers or in, in automation and that kind of thing, when you have this kind of investment pattern, what does that mean? So if you're if you if you have huge investments in capital and working capital, how is that going to change the whole dynamic of investment? We've only said it might drop the prices a bit, but I think there's a more interesting story to unpack there. Thank you. Uh, so, I don't know if I could rephrase the question. I mean, what are the pressures to invest in physical versus human capital? I mean, does Wall Street want you to only invest in physical capital, you know, maximize the value of that land you sit on? Or uh, does, what's, the, what's the value instead of investing in human capital? Gina, do you want to take a crack at that? Because you're kind of in a capital light model, right? Because you don't really own your property. Well, only because I can't afford to. It oh, would, is that be, right? it would okay. really be great long term if I did. Um, from a, Well, sure. I mean, if, if Eddie Lampert could own all of the real estate that's, that he Max, maximizes money from a Sears taking money out of. I wish I could do that in my spaces, but um, yeah, so I don't, I don't really have an answer. I think that Walmart, although we've never been bedfellows, it, it's a really good example of Wall Street penalizing a business who really puts the emphasis on employees. And I think historically small businesses who have paid more but face intense competition because we don't get credit for that, that piece are they're a perfect example of that being the case. Yes. From a sort of a purely capitalistic point of view, if the reason that you can't afford the land is that there's like a fancy new chain restaurant that wants that space and can pay more for it, that's kind of like the way the capitalism works, right? So maybe the message out there is the reason it's hard to run a retail store is that it's just not a very profitable enterprise versus all the other things that people want, especially if we're talking about new urbanism and young people flooding into these cities. They want like fancy bars and they want like climbing gyms and so forth. I guess it's a broader question of asking whether <laughs> the traditional notion of a small store is really where the future is or whether we're sort of like fixated on something from the past that we can't recapture. Wow, I think I just called, got called old fashioned. That's the first. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I lose to gyms and banks and uh, restaurants and bars. Not so much gyms anymore, but all the time. I do have a friend who's a, a really great restaurateur who said last summer there were 80 new restaurants that opened, and she felt it. It was very tough. I mean, she's also paying very high rents, and they, restaurants and bars in D.C., although we are a super vibrant market, are, will start to face those, those struggles. And you see it across the city with restaurants um, or bars that have closed. But the bottom line is you're actually growing Right, you're opening more stores. So at the end of the end of the day, the difficulties are what they are. The market wants what you have to offer. Well, the market wants what, what wants what we have to offer. Um, I, I, to be completely frank, we have decided that we are done growing, and we had to make that decision at least for now because of a lot of these financial ramifications, the rents that have gone up, the landlords who only want me to be in a basement because I'm not street worthy. Um, rising cost of health care, all of those things put together, we decided it would make more sense to focus on current operations versus growing. So whether it stays that way, I don't know. Um, I think neighborhoods still want a local hardware store like we want a local pharmacy and a local um, grocery store. So I don't think that's going to go away even though we are a little old-fashioned in the yeah. business. I think, I mean, just like from what I see around, I think they're going to want those things as well. And uh, <laughs> um, 
Lightning round, okay, I'm going to finish this last question. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about some big trends. I'm going to ask each of you 10 years from now, and your answer is going to be more or less or the same. Uh, will we have more, less, or the same number of workers in retail 10 years from now in this country? Ah, same. Uh, less. Yeah, less. Less. Wow. Will the average retail worker earn more, less, or the same 10 years from now? More. More. To what? Yeah. Uh, to baseline. I mean, to right now, inflation adjusted? <laughs> uh, relative to the... Uh, I mean, relative, to the, relative to the median, like, <laughs> relative to the median wage um, I actually think they're less. I think we're going to go through deflation. I think maybe more. Yeah. Interesting. So, fewer workers than I have a little bit more money. Hmm. Okay. Well, minimum wage is still seven twenty-five in like twenty-four states, and so if we would at least get those states to raise the minimum wage, the That's starting wage, it's going to go up, right? Even though there will there may be deflation there. Well, thanks all four of you for what I thought was a really great, interesting discussion. Thanks.